This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 4. The First Battle of the Atlantic. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Tudor England's relationship with its neighbours was a complicated beast. Some relationships were part of a centuries-long tradition. Scotland was to the north, a rival kingdom with on-again, off-again hostilities, allied to England's chief enemy on the continent, France. The famous Old Alliance was highly beneficial to both countries, while England held territory in modern-day France essentially requiring English armies to fight two front wars on two different landmasses. England had maintained its own traditional alliance with Spain, sharing their hostility towards the French king with the kingdoms of Iberia. Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon, was a Spanish princess, and Mary, daughter to Catherine, became the wife of the King of Spain, Philip II, in 1554. With the death of Mary in 1558, Elizabeth inherited the foreign policy of her sister. Before her accession to the throne, Calais, the last remnant of the formerly vast English holdings on the continent, had fallen to French armies. England was allied with Spain, and the newly widowed Philippe II was eager to keep his alliance with his late wife's sister. Yet, just half a century later, the diplomatic situation had radically changed. In 1589, William Cecil, now Lord Burley, wrote to a friend, quote, The state of the world is marvellously changed when we true Englishmen have cause for our own quietness to wish good success to a French king and a king of Scots, end quote. Throughout Elizabeth's reign, she had overseen the reversal of England's dealings with foreign powers. As Cecil pointed out, Scotland and France became friendly powers, to the extent that Scotland's king would peacefully inherit the throne of England 14 years after he was writing. The Habsburgs had transformed from a stoic ally, married to the English monarch, to an implacable foe, 
who repeatedly attempted to invade England. The development of this new status quo will be the topic of today's episode, as English and Spanish interests come into conflict. It should be said that foreign policy in this period was not the same as the modern term. In fact, whether or not Elizabeth had a foreign policy at all is a topic of argument among historians, although for our purposes it really doesn't matter. Whether Elizabeth and her Privy Council were working to a planned policy, or merely reacting to events, we will be referring to an English foreign policy. It's just simpler that way. So, Elizabeth's early foreign policy was traditional. Despite turning down Philippe of Spain's marriage proposal, she had let him down gently and assured him that they were still friends. England remained involved in commerce with the Low Countries, which was a good motivation for both Elizabeth and Philippe to keep relations friendly. France remained an English enemy, having only months prior captured Calais, while Scotland, ruled by the regent Mary of Guise, mother of Mary, Queen of Scots, remained a hostile power in the eyes of the English court. Mary of Guise was herself French, and Mary, Queen of Scots, was married to the French Dauphin, the heir apparent. The old alliance had never been stronger. As a further reason to avoid rocking the diplomatic boat, Elizabeth had inherited a debt of £300,000 from Mary, which took 20 years to clear. Cheers for that, sis. The extent to which Elizabeth's government was influenced by religion is up for debate, but it is impossible to entirely avoid confessional politics in early modern European diplomacy. According to Professor Geoffrey Parker, Philippe wanted to interfere with English affairs from the very beginning. He considered himself uniquely knowledgeable about the country, and hoped to return the kingdom to the Catholic fold. He was THE Catholic King, after all. He despised heresy in any form, and that included the Protestantism of his former sister-in-law. That would cause problems later on in both of their reigns, but during the first decade relations were, despite everything, friendly. Largely, this came down to realpolitik. English trade was incredibly profitable, and suppressing Dutch dissidents was easier, with at least one side of the English Channel allowing safe passage for ships. A hostile England would be in a great geographic position to help his rebellious subjects, both in terms of directly sending aid to the Netherlands, as well as preventing easy passage of Spanish reinforcements through the Channel. Meanwhile, the Ottoman Turks were Spain's priority for most of the 1560s, and France remained a hostile rival in the centre of Philip's European holdings. Simply put, Spain didn't need more enemies, and England was a useful ally against those it already had. Philippe and Elizabeth's cordial relationship was premised on mutual non-interference. Elizabeth would not become a champion of Europe's Protestants, and certainly wouldn't support his own Protestant subjects in resisting his rule, provided she did neither of these things and avoided stepping on his toes, strategically speaking, Philip would protect Elizabeth from the worst of papal anger, not support her own religious dissidents, and perhaps most importantly, not attempt to replace Elizabeth with her Catholic cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots. That last point was a last resort for Philippe. As we shall see later, the Queen of Scots was inextricably connected to France through her marriage to the French king, and placing her on the throne was the same as granting France control 
over the British Isles. Elizabeth, for her part, appears to have gone out of her way to keep the Spanish on her side. After rejecting Philip's own marriage proposal, she began negotiations to marry Archduke Charles, the third son of the Habsburg Emperor Ferdinand and Philip's cousin. The negotiations went nowhere for a good few years, with the main issues being those of succession, Charles would become her heir presumptive, and religion, what religion Charles would follow while in England. What they did succeed in doing was keep Philip hoping that England would return to the Habsburg orbit. Now, as we know from last episode, Anglo-Spanish relations did break down, with the breakdown of trade in 1563, and when English privateers began attacking Spanish fleets and settlements. But in early modern Europe, a little thing like piracy or pillaging was just the way the world worked. It was annoying, but could be overlooked in the interests of peace. The diplomatic situation between England and Spain was only as good as their diplomats. From 1568, when the English ambassador was evicted from Spain for openly advocating in favour of the Dutch Protestants, there would be no English ambassador at the court of Madrid. In England, most Spanish ambassadors did anything but improve relations. At least two ambassadors were definitely involved in Catholic intrigues against the Queen, with or without orders from Philippe. This behaviour only fanned the flames of those who believed that Spain was actively trying to overthrow Elizabeth, while the diplomats reported Elizabeth's attempts, both real and imagined, to support Protestant rebels in the Netherlands and France. Now let us look to the north, as events in Scotland will have a role to play in the larger European balance of power. As mentioned earlier, upon Elizabeth's accession, Scotland was ruled by a regency headed by Mary of Guise, the mother of the Queen, also called Mary. For clarity's sake, because we've now mentioned three Marys, Queen Mary will be Mary, Queen of Scots, not Mary Tudor, and her mother will be Marie de Guise. So, Queen Mary had been spirited away from Scotland in 1548 after a marriage agreement which betrothed the young Queen to the French Dauphin the future Francis II. Mary would remain in the safety of France for much of her childhood, and her mother, Marie de Guise, would rule on her daughter's behalf from 1554. As her name would suggest, Marie de Guise was a member of the powerful French noble de Guise family. She could count a cardinal and a duke among her brothers, both of whom were part of the French government. Even had Queen Mary not been betrothed to the future French king, the regency of Marie was enough to bind Scotland to France to an extent completely intolerable to the English. Both combined meant that Scotland was effectively a beachhead for foreign French troops, and a possible muster point for an invasion of England. The, quote, old postern gate where the Scots could create a diversion had become the front door through which a French army might march, end quote. These fears came to pass when French soldiers were deployed in Scotland, occupying a number of Scottish fortresses around Edinburgh, particularly one at Leith. Adding to this traditional threat of a Franco-Scot alliance was the 16th century's new addition to international diplomacy, religion. Scotland was, at this point, still a Catholic kingdom, as was France, 
And the de Guise family was famously zealous in their suppression of heresy, as seen from their central role in the upcoming French Wars of Religion. Marie de Guise was no different, and fervently attempted to crush the growing Calvinist presence in her daughter's kingdom. In 1557, three years into her regency, a number of Protestant Scottish lords signed a pact. This was the first band of the lords of the congregation. They swore to keep to their faith and to reform Scotland, and were relatively peaceful for the rest of 1557. Queen Mary was not yet married to the Dauphin, and the Catholic Mary Tudor was still on the throne of England. Yet in 1558, both Queen Marys changed their respective positions. Mary, Queen of Scots, married Francis, therefore solidifying French Catholic influence over Scotland, while Mary Tudor vacated the English throne because, well, she died. In her place came Elizabeth, a hopefully more sympathetic neighbour to the Protestant Scottish nobility. In 1559, John Knox gave a sermon at Perth, which was so effective it caused a riot, and the unrest spread through Scotland. This provoked a reaction from Marie de Guise, and the lords of the congregation took up arms to defend their religion. They occupied Edinburgh, and Marie de Guise was briefly deposed as regent. The lords looked south for assistance from their co-religionists, but found a surprisingly icy reception. Elizabeth was none too keen to support the lords at first. Firstly, as an anointed monarch, she was uneasy about supporting rebellion, no matter the reason. She had her own religious dissidents to deal with, and offering support to those of her neighbours would justify her neighbours doing the same right back. The ties that bound Scotland to France were also a consideration. Assisting the deposition of a French regent risked war with the King of France, and this was only a year since peace had finally been signed with the loss of Calais. Openly supporting Protestant rebels also risked Elizabeth's relationship with Philippe of Spain. In this way, assisting the Protestant rebels risked hostility with the two greatest Catholic powers on the continent. These two issues, unease at supporting rebellion and fear of foreign responses, would recur again and again over the rest of her reign. But her reluctance in this case had a third, personal element. John Knox. Knox had published a sermon early in 1558, where he had railed against the dangers of female rulers. Now it's clear he meant two particular female rulers, Marie de Guise and Mary Tudor, but within the year Mary Tudor had died, and Elizabeth had now taken the throne. To say this publication was awkwardly timed was an understatement. Knox, a leading figure in the Scottish Reformation, had accidentally questioned the right to rule of a powerful potential ally. So England held off assisting the Lords of the Congregation, and in August and September French reinforcements arrived and evicted the occupiers of Edinburgh Castle. Elizabeth's Privy Council was divided on what to do next. Elizabeth herself feared that an invasion in support of the Protestant lords would invite retaliation from Spain. The most she would countenance was an English army to maintain a presence in Berwick-upon-Tweed, a border town, and a blockade of the Firth of Forth, the estuary on the east coast of Scotland on which Edinburgh and Leith sat. 
A blockade would prevent further French reinforcements arriving in the capital, but wasn't quite as aggressive as a land invasion. William Cecil, her Secretary of State and closest advisor, took a more interventionist view. He advised sending a force of 4,500 men to fight the French. Elizabeth was eventually convinced, as the lords of the congregation began to suffer defeats, and in February of 1560 she signed the Treaty of Berwick. This promised joint military action against the French and mutual defence. English forces, combined with the armies of the lords of the congregation, rolled back the forces of the regent. In June, Marie de Guise died, and the Treaty of Edinburgh was signed in July 1560. Mary, Queen of Scots, was to stop trumpeting her claim to the English throne in her decrees and on her coat of arms. French armies would withdraw from Scotland, and the lords of the congregation would rule Scotland while the Queen was in France. The new government summoned a Reformation Parliament shortly after, which broke all ties with Rome and established a new Protestant church. Scotland was now a friend, both politically and religiously, to England. There was no further need for conflict, in the arguments of Cecil, because English and Scottish interests now aligned. Direct military subjugation was no longer necessary for England's security. Everything was coming up England. And then, Mary returned from France, and that promised security was gone. Mary refused to ratify the Treaty of Edinburgh, and continued to proclaim her right to the English and Irish thrones, and while she couldn't roll back the Reformation that had taken place in her absence, she was still a devout Catholic. While Mary offered to renounce her claim to Elizabeth's throne, this was on the condition that she be made the Queen's heir presumptive. If Elizabeth died before having an heir, Mary would inherit the crowns of England and Ireland. Elizabeth refused. Relations worsened throughout the 1560s, reaching their nadir in 1565 with the marriage of Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary had married Henry Stuart, the Lord Darnley, her cousin, and a fellow claimant to the English throne. As we shall see, the threat of foreign Catholic intervention to support Mary's claim would dangle over Elizabeth's head until the former lost hers in 1587. Despite this, Elizabeth's perpetual hatred of rebellion reared its head in 1567 when Mary was expelled from Scotland by rebellious Protestant lords. Her newborn son, James, took the throne at the age of one, and in an echo of his mother's early life, his rule was dominated by a long-term regency. Mary herself fled to her neighbour in May of 1568, and was detained and would be kept imprisoned for the remainder of her life. On the face of it, this was a win for Elizabeth. Her main rival to the crown was now in her custody, and her northern neighbour was once again ruled by Anglophile Scottish Protestant lords. But Mary's imprisonment in England did not lead to peace. Domestically, the deposed monarch became a focal point for Catholic dissidents. The Duke of Norfolk sought to secretly marry her, and the Rising of the North in 1569, a widespread Catholic rebellion, sought to place her on the throne. Internationally, Elizabeth's imprisonment of a ruling monarch attracted condemnation, and the threat of an international coalition, with the aim to free and crown Mary as the Queen of the Three Kingdoms, was ever-present. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back to the continent. Relations with Spain had worsened. In the same year that the English ambassador was expelled from Spain, 1568, five Spanish ships, laden with treasure, docked in English ports to shelter from poor weather and Dutch pirates. This wealth was en route to the Netherlands to pay the Spanish troops. The English government, acting solely in the interests of safety, ordered the Spanish bullion offloaded from the ships to protect it from thieves. That's right, forget that English ships have been raiding Spanish settlements and attacking Spanish ships in the quest for gold, just just trust us to keep this gold safe. The Spanish ambassador in London, one of those who would later conspire with Catholic dissidents, wrote to the governor of the Netherlands, the Duke of Alva, and urged him to respond by seizing and confiscating English property in the Netherlands. Alva did so, and Elizabeth responded in turn by doing the same with Spanish ships and property. By January of 1569, all trade between England and Spain, including the Spanish Low Countries, was suspended. We covered the repercussions of this last episode, but it was devastating for both countries' finances. Aside from the financial conflict, Aside from this financial conflict, the breach reopened the question of Spanish interference in domestic English politics. During the rising of the North, the Catholic uprising mentioned just before, Philippe told the Duke of Alva that he might just give the rebels some money to help their cause, and likewise supported assisting rebellious Catholics in Ireland and championing the claim of Mary Queen of Scots to the English throne, who was, of course, at the time in English custody. Perhaps most brazenly, Philippe approved a plot by Despes, the Pope, English Catholics, and Mary herself to assassinate Elizabeth. This was the response that Elizabeth had feared all along, and her court worked itself into a frenzy with the fear that a Catholic crusade was en route to invade England. They needn't have worried, Philippe was still contending with the Ottomans in the Mediterranean and the rebels in the Netherlands, and an expensive invasion was the least of his priorities but to contemporaries, this was a genuine concern. England turned to the French and the Germans for a replacement to the Habsburg alliance, but found little success. The German princes rejected her proposals, which would have secured military support in the case of a Spanish invasion and protected the newly established staple port at Hamburg. Elizabeth was not seen as a particularly staunch ally by the Germans, and the Lutheran princes took issue with her support of Calvinist Scots. With France, there was a proposed marriage alliance between the Queen and the future Henry III, then Duke of Anjou. This wasn't intended as a direct replacement for the Anglo-Spanish friendship, but it was more to pressure Philippe to restore the friendly relationship. It would also stop France's support for Mary. Negotiations continued into 1572, when the Duc d'Anjou rejected the marriage altogether. Elizabeth was almost 20 years older than him, and a heretic. 
The diplomatic negotiations continued, sans marriage, and concluded with the Treaty of Blois. This promised military assistance in the case of invasion, and removed French support for Mary. As a purely defensive alliance, it was hoped that Spain would not see this as an irreparable break. The alliance was almost immediately tested with the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, when the French king ordered the deaths of thousands of French Protestant Huguenots. The highest status Huguenot victims were attending a wedding of the French king's sister to the Huguenot leader, offending polite sensibilities even further. England was, of course, outraged, and the Privy Council, led by Cecil, urged Elizabeth to send troops to assist Huguenots in the newly resurgent civil war. Cecil, in particular, took an apocalyptic view of events in France. As Professor Susan Duran of Jesus College Oxford puts it, quote, Viewing the forces of the Counter-Reformation in a way that had later echoes in the American vision of the communist threat during the period of the Cold War, Cecil compared the Guise attack on the Huguenots in 1562 to the start of a rockfall which, if left unchecked, would gather momentum and destroy all in its path, end quote. Despite this view, Elizabeth did not break off relations, although she wrote many angry letters and supported the Protestants under the table, allowing refugees to settle in England and not blocking volunteers from leaving England to fight for the Protestant cause. No official English army would be sent to France, however. The previous intervention in 1562 had been an expensive and humiliating failure, and Elizabeth had no interest in repeating it. In 1574, Anglo-Spanish relations improved with the Treaty of Bristol, which ended the embargo and ordered all merchants to be compensated for their losses from the seizures. The treasure that had been removed for safekeeping six years ago was finally returned to the Genoese bankers to which it was owed, and the Duke of Alva, whose presence so close across the Channel was a cause of worry at the English court, was recalled. All the causes of the crisis were, seemingly, removed, but the breakdown in relations had only created the seeds of future conflict. At this point, as we covered last episode, the financial life of Antwerp had withered to almost nothing. English merchants had adapted to the embargo by opening up wider relations with other North Sea ports, and so keeping Antwerp open for business was less important. Doubly so, after the Spanish troops pillaged it in 1576. English merchants were still interested in Spanish gold, though, but not in the way that Madrid hoped. During the embargo, the traders who had previously lobbied for peace with Spain, in order to keep trading at Antwerp, had begun investing in the privateers who had so successfully prowled the oceans. The return of friendly Spanish relations was now bad for business. Superficially, England and Spain were once again friends. But this was an act, and both Elizabeth and Philippe knew it. During the embargo, and with French approval, England had supported the Protestant lords of Scotland against the partisans of Mary, and Elizabeth was covertly supplying Dutch rebels and, like in France, allowing her subjects to fight on behalf of the Protestants. And of course, there was the whole piracy thing. Philippe was well aware and the Anglo-Spanish relations continued to deteriorate throughout the 1570s and into the 1580s. A number of plots, some genuinely involving Spaniards and with the approval of Philippe, 
were uncovered that targeted Elizabeth's regime, and seemed to prove Spain's hostility. While the Treaty of Joinville, which allied Spain to the French Catholic League, was mistakenly received in London as clearly targeting England. More blatantly hostile was the seizure of English shipping in the May of 1585, with the apparent intention to use these vessels in some kind of Spanish armada. Throughout all this time, England continued to try and build its relationships with France and the German princes. Yet, in 1585, once Elizabeth signed the Treaty of Nonsuch and dispatched official English armies to fight in the Netherlands, her only ally were the rebellious United Provinces. The French were preoccupied with their internal wars, and the Lutheran Germans continued to be suspicious of Elizabeth's intentions. Yet war with Spain was clearly approaching, and no stronger allies were making themselves known. Delay would only leave England standing alone if the Dutch were defeated. Elizabeth committed her kingdoms to war. The Treaty of Nonsuch promised the United Provinces a loan of £126,000 a year, which paid for an English army of 6,500 infantry and 1,000 cavalry. In return, and as insurance against a unilateral Dutch surrender and the repayments of their debts in the event of victory, England would maintain control over three ports. Notably, Elizabeth refused to accept the fealty of the Dutch and was livid when her general, the Earl of Leicester, took the title of Governor-General. During this period, Elizabeth looked to her northern neighbour, James VI, who now ruled Scotland in his own right after a long regency. The Treaty of Berwick, a different Treaty of Berwick to the one signed with the Lords of the Congregation, was signed in 1586 and promised to defend one another from any invasion, provided James with an annual pension and ensured that the borders were slightly more peaceful. To most historians, the Treaty of Berwick, and particularly the English pension, is a sign of Elizabeth's plan to make James her heir. After all, at this point she was still unmarried and was now in her fifties. It was also likely a way for making up for what came next. The execution of James's mother the following year, Mary, Queen of Scots, who had been imprisoned for almost twenty years. Elizabeth entered the conflict with a comparatively small but reasonably high-quality armed force on sea and land, and her naval forces were experienced from the previous <coughs> peacetime activities. We covered the bulk of the naval war in the previous episode, so we won't get bogged down again. Elizabeth attempted to negotiate a peace in 1595, but Philip II showed little interest and died in 1598. Philip III, his successor, indicated that he was open to peace, but the Privy Council was divided over how to respond, whether to come to terms or to carry on the war as long as possible. In August 1598, Elizabeth renegotiated her alliance with the Dutch, effectively recognising it as an independent state, and in 1600 she agreed to open peace talks with Spain. The first talks were a disaster as neither side could agree on simple matters of protocol, and they were abandoned. Elizabeth would never see peace with Spain, and it was left to James to bring the Anglo-Spanish War to an end. But that is for another episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pax Britannica, 
and thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music used in this episode. Next time, we will be returning to Ireland, as another front of the Anglo-Spanish War opens up. The King of the O'Neills, the Great Earl, the O'Neill himself, Hugh O'Neill, will lead the largest war against English domination of Ireland until the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. To meet his challenge, Elizabeth will have to send an army much larger than she ever sent against Spain. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.